Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day, the opportunity to come together, a new day, a new opportunity to dive into your word and allow you to speak to us. We thank you, Lord, especially for all those we remember today who have given their lives in service to this country, in service for their brothers and sisters in the world who um, do not know the luxuries that we enjoy and the sacrifices that are often uh, used to purchase those. And so we pray, Lord, um, in remembrance today for all those, especially those in our lives who have died serving this country. And we pray, Lord, um, that you would help us to have the presence of mind to know the depth of you dying for us and how on this Memorial Day it is so appropriate for us to read this passage tonight to be reminded of your great sacrifice for us how much you love us. And so we pray, Lord, you would speak to us tonight. That you would remove any distractions, worries, or anxieties from our minds so we can fully enter into this discussion and time of study. And we pray, Lord, that you would just bless us all gathered here in the ways that we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. So great to have you all here. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. So after every Pentecost, yesterday was Pentecost Sunday, happy Pentecost. Uh, after The Sunday after Pentecost is always the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. And the Sunday after that is always the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, the Body and Blood of Jesus. Uh, two very important feast days in our church. And so uh, I once heard a priest say, um, for a final in his Trinitarian theology class, you had to preach a homily on Holy Trinity Sunday and not commit heresy. Uh, because there are so many Trinitarian heresies, so many ways to misunderstand God as Trinity. So we might get into that a little bit tonight, but uh, especially we're going to get into our gospel for this Sunday, which is John 3:16 through 18. So uh, we're going to read through this a few times because this is a very, I mean, this is one of the pivotal, most important passages in all of Scripture. So we want to make sure that we are reflecting on it. And you've heard this many times. You probably have part of this memorized. Um, pretend that you don't. Act as though you've never heard this before. Let this wash over you. Really hear what's being said, because things that we know really well, we often kind of gloss over. So as we read through this, uh, just kind of let this sink in. The setting of this passage, even though it's a very famous verse, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who's come to visit him at night because he's seen and heard of these signs of wonders that Jesus is doing. He's trying to figure out who Jesus is, but he's doing it in the cover in the darkness of night in secrecy. And this is the conversation, part of the conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus have. So we'll begin John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a short passage. I'm going to read through it two more times, and as I do, I invite you to listen. See if there's any particular word or phrase that strikes you, stands out to you, relates to something going on in your own life, sparks a memory or a thought. Try and just focus on the words, even though you've heard this so many times, and see if something just resonates with you. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage or interpreting it theologically. Maybe a word just strikes you for some reason. That might be the Lord speaking to you. So reflect on that and ask the Lord, why this? What are you trying to say to me? So two more times through John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, But whoever does not believe has already been condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, reflect back on that passage. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here at your tables, I invite you to just take a few moments over the next 10 minutes, share what stood out to you, why it did, or questions you have about this reading. And then we'll draw it back to the larger group for discussion and questions after that. So um, I was trying to think of how to maybe summarize this, but there's so much here in these three short verses that I was thinking maybe to begin, we would open up with questions Um, Because there's really no cohesive way to kind of tile the directions we could go together. And I kind of know how I want to close us this evening. But I I think I just want to open up for questions sooner than we normally do. So anything standing out for you or any questions that you have about this reading? Yes. I I just think it's kind of interesting in these three three, uh, three sentences here that um, the word might is, bit, is used three times mm-hmm. instead of will yeah. or some other word might is used. Can you, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've noticed that too. It's like a kind of a terrifying reality when you see it. It's not like this guarantee, right? That God doesn't send his son into the world so that you will be saved, so that you might be saved. He's not going to force you. You know, God loves all of us. He's going to come after us. He sent his only son to die for us. Like, what more could you give? What more could you possibly do to communicate your love and your desire 
to bring people back into right relationship with you. And yet he still gives us free will. He still gives us a choice. And he says, I'm not going to force it on you. So you have the ability to be saved, but it's not a guarantee. So you might be, and you might not be, but it's up to you. Completely up to you. Yeah, Lauren. The word might isn't in every version of the Bible. Like in Acts, it says should. Oh, interesting. Now. And then I have the St. James, and it's, but have everlasting life. There is, there is no life. Yeah, you the King James Version? Okay, well. <laughs> Bible's a great Bible, but, yeah. And what translation is yours, Matt? The RSV Catholic Edition? Yeah. Yeah. So the implication of should is interesting, too, because that, that it implies the same thing. That's like, it's not a guarantee, but it is what you are intended to receive. That is not what the, uh, the uh, Revised Standard Edition version uh, from Ascension Press says. It's, you guys don't have the same one? Yeah. No, it says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Meaning you will have eternal life. Yeah, should not perish, but have. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's another word for shall, is what I think, meaning that however that was translated from language, but mm -hmm. might can be used as a, an affirmative statement, not a, yeah. not a waffling statement. Yeah. And we, our, our group was uh, wondering, and I think we pretty much determined that this was, this was not, before this are the quotes from Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and mm -hmm. this seems to be a summary by John. Some commentators think so, yeah. Because, because there's quotes here, but if you read past this, it looks like it would be, meaning the next one's about the people of the darkness. Mm -hmm. It looks like it might be, the, I don't know whether it's supposed to be a quote or whether it's John, but it, it lends a flavor to it where you, even though you cannot believe, but if you are a person of the darkness, then you are condemned because mm -hmm. you have to have had the opportunity to have believed. Mm, yeah, kind of like we we're talking about last week or the week before with baptism by desire and, you know, the condition of it being whether or not you responded to the gift of salvation. Right. Yeah. So in some, we have different versions. In, in some versions, um, well, in all versions, the quote ends with, uh, um, the quote ends with, um, See, yeah, with 15, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, mm -hmm. unquote. Um, so my assumption was the rest of it is John, uh, John's words. Yeah. But, but in their versions, those words are printed in red, which mm. always indicates, you know, when Jesus is speaking. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, theologically, the way we would interpret it is that whether Jesus directly said this or not, Salvation is promised to us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He hasn't done it yet at this point, but as John is writing it, it has already happened in the past. And that is something that is offered freely, unconditionally, but only received conditionally if we respond. So the might is still, or should, like we should receive it. It's what we were made for, but we might not receive it if we don't respond to that gift. I mean, that's the, the theological reality, kind of regardless of which translation we're going with and the minuscule change in words it means the same thing you know every single version 
you can derive that meaning from. Yeah. Just on that point, because I think the salvation word is extremely overloaded and not, it's a little ambiguous. So mm -hmm. there's, because um, you said it right there, and I was like, not really. Like, redemption is what Jesus did, and salvation is what we made, eternal salvation. Yes. We may have, right? So yeah. the redemptive part, like, we have nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. We witness it perhaps, perhaps, you know. But like the salvation part, which I think we're kind of construing, like we're mixing a lot of these things. Because like without the Calvary, you know, we're we're all screwed. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like what we're already condemned. Yeah. It. So now with it happening, we may or shall or however it's it's possible. Mm -hmm. to, to, so I think that because like like the Lutherans, for example, this this whole um, agreement on on uh, like the certain theological things mm -hmm. like the way they understand salvation we understand it as redemption yes and, and it's very it's very important that we don't like mix the terms up because i they, we could agree on paper that yeah we're, we're saved and they're gonna understand, we understand it one way but mm -hmm. so there's like christ's work and there's like our participation in the grace which would, would ultimately give us this you know, uh, crown of glory yeah it's, it's, it's a little i don't know yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. The, the nuanced differences in terminology are very important in between Catholicism and then Christianity or Protestantism, non-Catholic Christians as a whole, because we use similar terms, but they mean different things. So in non-Catholic Christian circles, when they talk about being saved or being justified, they're talking about that response of faith that is only because and made capable of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's all that you need. Now, we believe that in the same way, the redemption, as John is pointing out the distinction there, we are initially justified because of only what Jesus did on the cross. However, we must respond. And when we respond, I've used this analogy before, it's like getting married. When you make the vow in response, you have to live up to the vow. And if you are not being faithful to the vow, if you're not being faithful to that belief, to that promise to the other person, you're going to be judged according to that. You know, it'll be clear whether or not you're having a good marriage or a bad marriage, or you're having a good relationship with God or not a fruitful one. And so if we really do believe we're going to bear those fruits, it doesn't mean we have to be perfect. It doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. That's why we have the gift of reconciliation and confession. Every time we make a mistake, we can go back to Jesus and receive his mercy, not his judgment, not his condemnation, because we have the opportunity to be completely free of condemnation. If we recognize I can do nothing for myself, other than what Jesus did on the cross, and just responding to that. You know, the, the, in verse 18 here, where it talks about being condemned, we shy away a lot in the world today of talking about the language of condemnation. It sounds very, like, you know, not friendly, you know, because it's, it's, it's not a pleasant word or a pleasant idea to think about. But Jesus talks about this all the time. Like, these are very uncomfortable things that Jesus said. Later on in John chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Nor does the Father judge anyone, but he has given all judgment to his Son. Jesus has the capability to judge everyone. And then in John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus himself says, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see might see, and those who do see might become blind. And then later in John chapter 14, verse 47, he says this, And if anyone hears my words and does not observe them, I do not condemn him, for I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever rejects me and does not accept my words has something to judge him. The word that I spoke, it will condemn him. 
on the last day. So Jesus is speaking almost in guaranteed type of language that condemnation is going to be a reality if we don't recognize the gift of salvation that Jesus won for us. So here's the problem. If we don't talk about the reality that like condemnation is at stake, hell and separation from God is at stake, then what we're doing is we're muting the power of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're, we're making it shallow what Jesus did. Like Jesus literally, this is what St. Augustine basically said. He basically said, theologically, when everyone is born, they're born on a one-way train with a ticket to hell in their hand. And there is no way off. The only chance that you have is that Jesus reaches into that train, risks his own life and limb, and pulls you out. That's the reality of grace, the reality of what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't matter how many times you go to Mass, how holy you look, how many prayers you say, you cannot save yourself. We cannot save ourselves. It's only because of what Jesus did for us. And if we don't talk about that reality of condemnation, the depth of the pit that Jesus pulled us out of when he died for us on the cross, we cannot experience the depth of his love. His love then becomes shallow. It's just like, well, he loves everyone. He just gives us hugs. It's like, no, like he totally went to the depths of hell and back for us. Like that's how much he loves us. The word that stands out to me in this that has never stood out to me before anytime I've read this, for God so loved the world. Not just love the world, so loved. We say love about a lot of things and a lot of people, but we don't say I love you so much to many. That so is like it encapsulates the profound depth and intimacy of God's love for you and me. The, the depths that he would go. It reminds me of this story. You may have heard this story before. Uh, in the late 80s, there was this really bad earthquake in Armenia. And uh, like 30,000 people died in the span of four minutes from this 8.2 earthquake. You may remember this. Um, and there was a story that began to circulate after the fact that the day this happened, there was a man who, uh, who was at home or went, to, went home to check on his wife to make sure she was okay. And then he went to go check on his son who was at school. Uh, and he got to the school and the school was leveled, completely collapsed. Everyone thought everyone inside must have been completely crushed. And the dad, he pulls up and he sees the shock of this, uh, this scene. And he remembers, he would always tell his son, no matter what, I'm going to be right beside you. I'm going to come after you. And so he gets over to the rubble and he just starts digging. He starts moving wreckage with his bare hands. His hands become sore. They start to bleed. He keeps going. Police officers come over to him and they're like, There's no, no one is surviving in there. Nothing. But he keeps yelling out for his son, Armand, Armand. And he hears nothing. And he digs for eight hours. And nothing. Keeps yelling out, Armand, Armand. Digs for 16 hours. Nothing. 24 hours. Nothing. 36 hours this man digs. All on his own. Pulling out boulders. Sweating. Bleeding. Endlessly. Not stopping. Because he told his son every single day, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. On the 38th hour, he moves a boulder. He says, Armand, Armand. And he hears, Dad, I'm here. And the rubble had crushed this classroom in a tent-like structure, and there was a pocket of this young boy and 13 of his classmates. And he said, I knew you'd come, and I kept telling my friends you'd come because you always said that you would come. That is what God does for you and for me. He will never stop fighting, never stop running after you. He will dig through the rubble and the wreckage of your life and your sin, and he will not condemn it. He will not say, oh, this stinking school is here, and get all mad. He will just keep digging. And he will let his hands bleed 
and he will sweat and he will suffer so that he can pull us out of that wreckage. If we don't talk about the reality of death and condemnation and the risk of hell, then we're missing the beauty and the depth of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the glory of heaven he won for us that we cannot earn ourselves. That is a free, loving, selfless gift for you and for me that we just respond to. And that is something I have an immense and profound respect for Christians in the Protestant tradition because they get it a lot better than we do. When they have that faith alone, all you have to do is have faith. That faith means a lot to them. That response of faith in what Jesus did, it means so much. They get it. They get what Jesus did on the cross. And we can learn a lot from that. The theological disparity is different because, yes, then we have to live up to that. It's not just a one and done and then you can do whatever you want in your life. No, that we, we need to respond. We need to live in response to that. And how could you not if you recognize the depth of what Jesus did for you and for me? For God so loved the world. So loved. Yeah? It's kind of related to what you just said. I'm kind of brought up. I brought it up the table, but it's a nice um, point to go home. Uh, so, you know, for God loved, so loved the world, he sent his only son, right? He loved son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your father, two or three, I can't remember. Two. two. And so, like, let's just say, God forbid, like, somebody's holding your wonderful wife hostage, right? And they're like, we need a ransom. And, um, you know, the father gets a call. He's like, nah, we have to be on the phone. Mm -hmm. Would your first instinct be, okay, send my son as the ransom? Oh, no. Right? Yeah. And then, additionally, we have later, literally, something to this extent where it says, you know, Greater love than this no man has than, than to lay his life down. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So all that being said, why? What do you think the rationale behind the father sending his son? Mm, I see. Yes. Because it sounds a little uh, really anti. I mean, like when my children are sick, like I pray to God to suffer to heal them mm-hmm. as a sacrifice. Yeah. For me to take on this. Um, you know, trauma. Yeah. So it's a very natural thing, and I I, I hope that's a fruitful prayer mm-hmm. you know, to, to offer myself. Yeah. So it, it's it's a you know powerful verse, and you even mentioned he so loved his world, so I think it's connected. Yeah. Uh, but you know, wanted to ask your. Yeah. No, it's a very good point. Why did Why did God send His Son and not Himself? You know, yeah. and and what's the the point in that? Well, the, I think part of that gets into the nature of the Trinity because. Father and Son in our context is different than Father and Son in the divine context, in the Trinitarian context. That my instinct, as I'm sure yours would be in that situation, would be take me instead, which is the instinct of God. But because God is a trinity and he reveals himself as three distinct persons, there's not the same type of separation that we have is I'm a separate being than my son. It's one divine being, but three distinct persons. And so what original sin does is it breaks our relationship with God. The Father. He revealed himself as Father specifically at that point. And so that relationship is broken, and we need to amend our relationship with God the Father. However, we are now broken, and we cannot perfectly mend something because we are not perfect. And so we have something that needs to be offered to the Father on behalf of humanity to fix humanity, but humanity is too broken to offer what needs to be offered. And so God comes as a perfect human. 
in order to fulfill both sides of that sacrifice. It's part of that one God, three persons nature, whereas we would be thinking of three beings or two separate beings and two separate persons in that instance, which is, it would be very odd, you know, to do that, like you go instead. So the act of Jesus coming to save us and God sending his son is the same as the motivation that you or I would have, take me instead. That's exactly what God did, but because of his nature, he can do it in a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I haven't seen it, but yeah. It's super beautiful and it's just so mind like every instance where Abraham had to say yes to like sacrificing his own son. Mm-hmm. And like he almost like couldn't tell anyone until the very last moment. And it's like so much tension is building up and then once it finally comes to like him like having to sacrifice his son, mm-hmm. like Isaac's like, Where's the sacrifice? Mm-hmm. He like breaks down and starts crying. Mm-hmm. Like you're the sacrifice. Yeah. And but he's he basically says like Isaac has to be willing. And the fact that Isaac was like, Okay, okay, Dad, I'll do it. Yeah. And like it just reminded me what he said, like the training needs like they're in this together. Mm-hmm. It's like he's not tricking Jesus into sacrificing himself. Like Jesus knows he has to willingly accept that. Mm-hmm. So it's like I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's like I think that movie like really captured that mm-hmm. depiction like Wow, this is like a father and son like sacrificing together. Yeah. Really How old did they depict Isaac about? Do you know? He was like around like nineteen. Okay. So he was like a man. Yeah. Like, or like you know, he was like uh, he yeah. just seemed like he like knew he was very faithful, mm-hmm. like he respected his father. And like the fact that he's just like willing to lay down his life. Yeah. You know, because God told Abraham and then Abraham told him he's kind of like yeah. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about that too is that, in, so that's in Genesis 22, I believe, the sacrifice of, of Isaac, um, where God asked Abraham to do that. Before that, in Genesis 17, God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, it's one of the many times he makes this promise, but he says, You will be a father of, of great nations, you will have many descendants. And he makes a specific promise that it will be through your, your son by Sarah, your only son, Isaac. He makes that specific promise that his lineage will come from Isaac. And so going up that mountain, Isaac in these moments asking, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb for sacrifice. And so I am one to interpret it as Abraham knowing that even if he has to go all the way to the point of offering his son to show his faithfulness, he knew that he was never actually going to have to do it because God, God made the promise. He made the promise. Someone did the math once that you, there are over 30,000 promises on the pages of scripture. And if you were to just claim one of those every single day, you'd have enough promises for like 80 years of your life for the promises of God to cover you and to just take them on to yourself. Like that's, God is a God who is faithful to his promises. And how cool is it that we have that Old Testament imagery in the very first book of the Bible of a father who we call in many different denominations of faith, Father Abraham, coming to sacrifice his only son. And when the knife is stayed, what does God provide? A lamb crowned in thorns in the thicket. And they are on Mount Moriah, which we now call today Mount Zion, where the temple was built in Jerusalem, the same place where Jesus is condemned and offered to death. I mean, from the very beginning, the first book of the Bible, like God knows already the promises he's making and how he's going to be faithful. 
And so it's a beautiful testament, that story, and also how it points to the story of the crucifixion. That God knew from the very beginning, this is what he was going to do. Not what he had to do when he had to buck up and go, oh, this is going to be really terrible. I guess I'll go. Dad's making me. No, like he wanted to go and do this. I've said this, I've used this analogy before, but it's the analogy of Jesus, not as some helpless victim on the cross, but Jesus as what's called an ambush predator. An ambush predator is an animal in the wild that appears hidden or dead before it strikes. There's one particular, uh, I think it's like a lizard or a snake. I was just reading about this or hearing about it on a podcast recently that sits in the middle of the jungle floor, wherever its native habitat is, with its mouth open and its eyes closed. And it does not move. And birds will literally hop around it until they hop onto this animal's tongue and walk into its mouth. And all it has to do is just close. That's the type of predator that Jesus is on the cross. He makes himself appear weak, hidden, dead, immobile to lure the enemy and make him think that he has won, that he is safe, that he has conquered humanity in some way. And then when that offering of Jesus to God the Father on our behalf is ratified, is consummated in his death, it's like the jaws close around the devil and he knows he's lost. I mean, that's the power of what Jesus does. So Jesus wasn't just there because someone needed to be punished. Someone needed to take on our sins. No, he chose to come and offer himself in this way intentionally for my sin and for yours. Because we cannot mend what we broke. Because it needs to be a perfect offering to a God who is perfect. And only a perfect human being can do that. And Jesus is the only one who has ever walked this earth. And and Mary. But the only one who has walked this earth as God. And who was willing to do that. Who came intentionally to do it. That also is the power of these words. It wasn't by accident. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he did it for you and for me. Sacrifice just seems weird. Like it doesn't make sense. Like, okay, like why did God you know, sacrifice Jesus mm-hmm. to save us? That doesn't make sense. But in the context of like the Jews, like it totally makes sense because yeah. of the Passover. So like just putting in that context, like Jesus is the last sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So like for us as Christians, like we don't really look back at like the whole history of sacrifice. Like, it was cool. It was talking about how every religion, like, sacrifice was huge. Mm-hmm. Like, even non Jewish traditions. Yeah. But then, like, I think it said, like, 200 years after Jesus was sacrificed, like, none of the religions, like, were sacrificing anymore for some reason. Wow. Yes, which is kind of cool. It's like, why? Yeah. Yeah, there's no need, yeah. you know? And in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve commit original sin, it says that God uh, created clothing for them out of animal hide, which means an animal had to die. Like that's the reality of sin that now creation is broken and things now need to be let go of, sacrificed, offered because of the brokenness of sin. You know, the, the description of the Passover, like how Jews are supposed to celebrate the Passover, you know, you find a spotless lamb without blemish on the, on the 10th day of the month of Nisan and you keep it for a week. Now, if you're a parent, you know, if you keep a baby lamb in the house for a week, that's going to be a hard thing to kill and eat at the end of that week. Because you have, you have to show that it, it, it's worth something. It costs you something to respond to God, to worship God, to believe in God. 
Our faith is not promised to be easy. It's not just thing we can say yes to or we can put in our back pocket one hour a week. This is something that's meant to animate our entire life because God animates our entire life. He's the reason we're still here breathing because he's not done with us yet. He loves us that much that in every moment, he's willing you into existence. That's how much he loves you. But it's not without purpose. That he has a job for you to do in this great mission, something that will fulfill you and allow you to experience the abundance of his love, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be without suffering or trial or sacrifice. Anything worth doing involves sacrifice. Getting married, having children, finding your dream job, going to school, starting that organization, you know, putting in the grind, whatever it is, all of that, getting fit, going to the gym, all of it requires sacrifice of time, of energy, of effort, of money. That's, it, you know, nothing easy really is worth doing. Anything worth doing takes sacrifice. And that, that is ultimately expressed in the sacrifice of Jesus for us. He offered everything. Arms completely open and splayed on the cross for you and for me. And every church we walk into, we're reminded that Jesus is willing to go that far for us. Offer his entire self. And it's a model for you and I to follow. That we are meant to give like that all of our love, all of our being, sacrificially to others. Not expecting people to say, oh, great job, let's give you an award, or we really want to acknowledge everything that you've done and celebrate you and affirm you. That's great if they do that, but that's not why we do it. And if no one ever mentioned it, and if no one ever noticed, we would still do it. We talk about the profound characters on the pages of Scripture. You know who I really admire and aspire to be like? All the people in Scripture who are unnamed. You know, like the boy who showed up for the feeding of the 5,000 with two loaves, or five loaves and two fish. I don't know his name. Carl, Frank, whatever his name was. You know, he just showed up with his lunch and was like, all right, I'm going to be faithful. And because of that, this miraculous sign happened. Nobody knows who he is or what happened to him. His name has not gone down in the annals of history as some famous saint. He was just one kind of character in the background. And how great it would be to be one background character in this grand story of salvation that God is writing for all of us. If we can but abandon our desire for the attention, for the glory, and recognize that this is all gift. It's all just response to the gift. And so how do I respond joyfully to everything that God has done for me? Because it's, it's, we're completely incapable of fathoming it or paying it back. All we can do is receive and bask in it. And live each day in response to it. That's it. That's what sacrifice, that's what love looks like. Looks like. The word here used for love is that word agape in Greek. Four different words for Greek used uh, in, in Greek used for the word love. All translate as love. We've talked about this before. But agape is that sacrificial love, the love of Jesus Christ, willing to lay down your life for another person. It's the love of marriage, it's the love of sacrificial discipleship. That's what we're called to. It's hard. It's not easy. Other questions? Yeah, Chrissy. I think I know the difference. I wonder about the tension between judgment and condemnation, because you mentioned a passage where Jesus did say, I came to judge. Yes. And yet he also says, I came not to condemn, but to save. Oh, yes. Yeah. I wonder if you can just talk about what the difference is. Yeah, so I don't know off the top of my head like the etymology of either word, but you are right in terms of the passages I read. There is a distinction where Jesus is, uh, the catechism actually says that he acquires the ability to judge us based on what he did on the cross. 
that God the Father entrusts that to him, and that's how he receives it. And so the ability to judge rests in Jesus. And so when we die, we believe theologically that we will uh, go what's for uh, called our particular judgment. The moment after we die, we will appear before Jesus for our particular judgment. But condemnation is something that is a result of our actions and our belief. And so you, you, that passage I read of John chapter 12, verse 47, where he says, I do not condemn him. The word that I spoke, it will condemn him on the last day. He's talking about his teachings, his message, the good news. That will be the judgment marker. And whether or not we responded, we either respond to the gift of salvation and allow Jesus to save us, or we condemn ourselves. So the, the, there's you know, a theological axiom or like phrase that says, uh, God does not condemn anyone to hell. We send ourselves there. And so hell is the terrible compliment God pays to our freedom. That's how T.S. Eliot put it. The terrible compliment God pays to our freedom. He allows us to separate ourselves from him, and he will respect our decisions in life and then carry them into death. He will not force himself upon us. So we condemn ourselves by our actions, our disbelief, our rejection of Jesus. Um, but our acceptance of him, that's what saves us. Uh, but he is the arbiter. He's the one who decides, who makes the judgment, and who makes the call based on whether or not we did believe or reject. So that, I think that's the distinction. Yeah. Other questions or things that just stood out to you? Chris? I like thinking back to yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the holier saints get in their lives and you read their readings, the more they are aware of the reality of hell and praying that they don't go there. Like there's writings from Padre Pio and Mother Teresa and all these great saints in our church who did these incredible things. And Padre Pio had the wounds of Jesus on his hands and would levitate in prayer. And he's like, I'm afraid of going to hell. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, do I even have a chance? You know, like, but, but that's the real, he knew what was at stake. He knew that even all of those holy things that God was manifesting in him, they weren't because of him, you know? And so what, what then do I bring to the table? Like the true Christian, when they get to their judgment and they put their resume of their life before Jesus, all that should be on it is a picture of the crucifix. That's it. There's not like, well, I was a director of adult evangelization and faith formation at St. Timothy's for this many years, and I really, I led this Bible study. People really like it, you know. Like, no, he's gonna be like, sorry, no, just kidding. But like, if I'm there, like, claiming that I've done all of this stuff, I've completely lost sight of the whole reality of Christianity. But the only reason I even have a chance is because Jesus won that for me. And all of this, anything that I do, any job I have, any ministry that I do, same for, for you as well, is just in response to that. So that other people will know that good news and respond to it. But we can't, we can't help people understand the good news and how good the good news is if we don't tell them how bad the bad news is. There's this great analogy. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the, oh, what's the name of the show? The, the Man in the High Tower. It's about like if, if the Nazis had won World War II. Has anyone ever seen this show? So I haven't seen it, but I've seen this one scene from the show. I think it's from the first episode. And there's a, there's a, the, the reality in this society is that the Germans won World War II, and there's like Axis powers you know, operating in the United States. They're in charge. 
And so this woman, and the day-to-day -day life is being controlled by all of that. And so this woman, she's sitting in her apartment. This is a reality in the world. And she comes across this film reel that someone sends her, some mysterious person. I think it's from The Man in the High Tower. I'm probably butchering the show. For There's probably people watching or you here like total fans of the show. Like, this is not what happens. But this is my understanding, okay? So she gets this film reel. And she puts it on a projector and she starts watching it. And all you see is her face respond. And she, her, she's just captivated. And you just see her saying, like, yes, yes. And then her husband, her boyfriend comes home. He's like, what are you watching? She says, it's, it's footage of us winning the war. And he says, well, we didn't win the war. She says, yeah, but, but, but this looks real. Like this, I feel like this happened. And I think that's the reality for so many people in our world is that we have been so bought into this idea that the bad news is just reality, that that's just the way life is. And so many people don't believe in God because they're focusing on all the bad news. But if you don't understand how bad the bad news is, then when you hear the good news, it's not going to capture you like it captured that woman. Yes, yes, we won, we won. That's what the crucifix tells us every time we see it. He won. He won. All the bad news I experience, all the doubt, the difficulty, the pain, and the suffering, all the darkness and brokenness, it doesn't matter because he won. He won. He defeated death. That's why it says in Scripture, O oh death, where is your sting? Christ has risen from the dead. What can touch us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? It's incredible when we understand it, but we can't understand how good the good news is if we don't understand how bad the bad news is. No one preaches more than hell, more about hell than Jesus. And that's not a very Jesus-y image that most people have of Jesus. But he talks about hell all the time in Scripture. When you read the Gospels, underline it. It's like every other chapter, every couple lines in some of the chapters and discourses. It's a lot because he wants you to understand the gift that God is giving in his sacrifice, in him coming to love us, to die for us. Otherwise, it's just some nice thing some guy did for a group 2,000 years ago. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. This is sort of random, but if you can't comment right now, that's totally fine. But I was wondering with the Our Father, what was Jesus doing when he descended into hell? You just kind of made me think of that. Mm -hmm. Like, what what was he up to when he was descended into hell? Yeah. So, yeah, it's in the Apostles' Creed um, where it says that Jesus descended into hell. Yeah, when he died, he descended into hell, and then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And so in the Hebrew conception of the afterlife, uh, the whole afterlife was called Gehenna or hell or Sheol. It's called, and that was all referred to as like hell or the underworld. But they had this version of it where it was split. So there was the bosom of Abraham where those faithful Jews would go to be with Abraham until the kingdom of heaven opened. And there was this great chasm in between it and Gehenna, the bad place. And so there's one particular parable, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, where there's the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus is this poor man who's like, the dogs lick his wounds at the door of the rich man's house. And the poor man dies and Lazarus dies and he sees that the poor man is in the bosom of Abraham and he's in Gehenna. And he's shouting across this chasm to Abraham, like, go tell my brothers, like, go send the poor man. He's still barking orders in the afterlife and not recognizing, like, the gift that he lost. 
Um, and so that, that is kind of their reality. So when theologically we say that Jesus descended into hell, he didn't descend into our conception of hell, like total separation from God. He descended into the, what's kind of like a holding place that was in existence before the kingdom of heaven opened because nobody except for a very select few, like those who uh, were assumed into heaven, um, would be thought of as being in heaven yet because we, we don't have the capability of it. We haven't yet had the salvific work of Jesus done for us on the cross. Once that's done, he goes down into the bosom of Abraham, preaches the good news to those souls, and then welcomes them up into the kingdom of heaven Yeah, in his resurrection. So that's why we say that. He didn't actually go to hell, like separate total separation from God because he couldn't do He is God, so he can't separate himself from himself. But he goes to that place where those people who were faithful were waiting. Yeah, great question. Any other thoughts? Yes, Vicki. Um, where it says, um, whoever does not believe has already been condemned. Now, does that give any any credence to them, but they're still trying to understand and trying to believe? Or it's like, you've got to believe right, right now, and then you have no... I see. Yeah, so it's not like an all or nothing. Like, you have to make the decision right now. Like, do you believe? Like, you're responsible for the level of truth that's been revealed to you. And you're responsible to respond to that. So if you haven't been evangelized, if you don't know the message of Jesus, then you can't possibly be, like, someone comes up to you and, like, knocks on your door and, like, you need to accept Lord, your Lord and Christ Jesus Savior into your heart right now or you're going to be condemned because it says it in John 3, 16, 17, 18. They're, that's not a reasonable thing to assume anyone to do because they don't understand. Now, to understand doesn't mean we have to fully grasp it because it's a mystery. But at least we have to know, based on what's revealed to us, is it enough for us to grasp in some way to be able to respond what God did for us? And I'll say it, it doesn't take much to convey to someone the depth of the gospel message. I mean, we've talked about it about four or five times over in our time here already. You know, And so there are other nuanced questions on the side, but the fundamental truth of like, God created you out of love. Sin separates you from that. Sin creates all this disappointment and darkness and things in your life. If you want to be free of that, like Jesus already won that freedom for you on the cross. And you can respond to that just by believing in him. Like pray to him and ask him to reveal it to you, to reveal his love to you, to receive it for yourself and belong to the church that his Holy Spirit was sent upon to guide you to be in relationship with him through the sacraments and prayer. Like that's, that's the gospel message. That's enough for a person to decide like, okay, do I want to believe? But then as you go on, it requires new steps of belief. Just like in a marriage, like I, so I made my vows to my wife almost 10 years ago. I'll be married 10 years this, this August. And what I promised to her and the words I said to her, I had a vision of what that would look like 10 years ago. If I were to make those promises today and renew them, which I do every day and being faithful to being married to her, those promises take on a deeper meaning. Because I know more of what's expected, you know, because when we get married, you know, it's like in sickness and in health for richer, for poor, but you're really only thinking about health and richness, you know, like, you know, you're not expecting the poor and the suffering. But now I know 10 years into it, you know, I'm not an expert, but I know like there's a, a deeper response that's required of me now. The same thing is true when the truth is revealed to us, like we're asked to respond to what's been given to us, but that at some point we need to recommit to that and respond to now you know, to Jesus again, because we, we understand the depth of that. That's why it's, we can't really take on this like one and done. You just have to express your belief in Jesus Christ and that's it. The ongoing 
uh, righteousness, justification that happens by our good works, by our continued study, by our understanding the depth of what it means that Jesus died for us, that takes a lifetime. And so it's not just a single moment. There's no pressure in that moment to like make the right decision or have everything figured out. It's about, are you willing to respond to the level that's been revealed in this moment? And as more is revealed, continue to respond faithfully, just like you would in any relationship. Yeah. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of this upcoming Sunday, the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, where you remind us that you are one God who reveals himself as three distinct persons throughout salvation history. Three persons who communicate the depth of your love for us. A father who would dig through the rubble of our sin, make covenant and covenant, promise after promise to come after us. A son who would give his life for us willingly on the cross so that we could have eternal life. The Holy Spirit who would come and literally dwell in us to guide us for the rest of our days so that we could be in right relationship with God and experience the abundance and joy of what that looks like. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much, for always coming after us, for always being by our side, especially in the moments we don't realize it or we think you've abandoned us. You are always there. And so we pray, Lord, this week we would reflect on that reality. We would remember how bad the bad news is so that we could rejoice in how good the good news is and all that you have done for us. And help us in the ways that we need to deepen our response to you and the ways that we need to share this gift with others to grow in that, to be brave, to be bold, and to be willing to step out in faith and acknowledge that you are real and that your love can change everything. So help us to realize how it has changed us and how you're continuing to work in our lives each and every day. If we're still breathing, you are not done with us yet, Lord, and so help us to continue to be faithful to you and experience your love in new ways each day. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much.